Well, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, by way of introduction, I've just been thinking about uh, just the things that influence our thinking in just a cultural way. Many modern philosophies characterize and define our modern age. And these ideas, while they may not be believed by every single individual person, they are infused into our cultural consciousness. Ideas like individualism and materialism, pragmatism or pluralism. We hear all these words as buzzwords all the time, but they have an impact and they have an effect on how culture really reacts and thinks. These philosophies, often not original in our time, have impacted the way that we not only think but also believe. One philosophy that really influences how we think about spiritual things is something called secularism. Secularism. In short, without getting into all the weeds of it, secularism emphasizes the here and now while minimizing the eternal. And as we see this, concepts like delayed gratification or future planning or even self-denial, concepts like this, they're downplayed. Instead, we want instant, we want immediate, we want the do-whatever-it-takes-to-be-happy. Those are kind of the values that we have culturally. Because of this, I think we have no tolerance for anything future, spiritual, or eternal. You ask most people on the street, you know, do you ever think about what happens to you after you die? They, most people, especially up here, say, well, not really. I mean, I don't know. Just kind of doing my thing. I'm working hard, living for now. And, you know, people say, I live for the weekend. It's a very short-sighted view of life in eternity. And so essentially, if it's not happening here and now, it's not happening. That's how most people live their lives, and that is based on a an understanding of secular, a secular mindset. But the Bible tells us that there's more going on than what we can see. A lot more. There are spiritual forces at work. There are angels. There are demons. God and Satan. So much is going on in other realms, frankly, it's hard to comprehend. However, despite the forces of darkness that are raging at all times against us, one thing is for sure. That Jesus Christ is Lord of all and powerful to drive out wickedness in all its forms. This truth is vividly communicated to us this morning in our text, Matthew chapter 8. So turn in your copy of Scripture, if you haven't already, to Matthew 8. We're working systematically through this gospel. It's going to take us a while, but it's been a joy so far to go through this journey together. Matthew has transitioned from his narrative Uh, into a a really heavy teaching section in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now he's moving and showcasing the power of Jesus in chapters 8 and chapter 9. If you've been with us, you've noticed this radical shift really from a large teaching portion. The Sermon on the Mount really is the, the greatest sermon ever preached, if we could say that. Now we're moving on, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Jesus heals on three different occasions. First, he heals the leper, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Then he moves on and heals the centurion's servant. Then he finally heals Peter's mother-in-law, at which point he and the disciples there become tired, and they want to get into a boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and then he's encountered a couple different other people, and they talk about discipleship and what it, the high cost of following Christ. We looked at that a couple weeks ago as well. But they cross over only to encounter this very fierce storm, And despite his utter exhaustion, Jesus is woken up and he calms the wind and he calms the storm with only a word. 
And this elicits really a nervous response from the disciples in verse 27. They ask this question, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Sort of an eerie calm after the storm. Who do we have in our boat with us? And they're about to find out. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. When he came over to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by the way, and they cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. And the herdsmen ran away and went into the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Now, this account in Matthew chapter 8 is also in fuller detail in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. So if you were to look at Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8, you'd see what's called parallel passages or parallel accounts. They record the exact same event but in some different details. And really, Mark and Luke give us more information than what's here in Matthew. And so, as a good student of Scripture that you need to be, and I need to be, the best place to go to get more information about what the Bible says is other places in the Bible that talk about this. And so, uh, that's what we want to do. We want to we bring in other passages that give clarity to the more confusing passages or the, the, the less full passages. And we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. It's a basic biblical principle. We're going to do that today. But we're going to look at what happens here. We know from the previous account that the disciples set out from the town of Capernaum to cross over the Sea of Galilee. Now, that could be approximately six to eight miles. If they went the long way down the, down the sea, it's about 13 miles. But depending on where they are on the shore is their distance of travel. But it says that they arrive to the other side. The following morning, they arrive in the country of the Gadarenes. Now, it's interesting that Mark and Luke both note that they enter the country of the Gerasenes. Not the Gadarenes, but the Gerasenes. So, the question that scholars will ask is, well, is this some kind of an error? The answer is not at all. Let me tell you why. The town of Gerasa is likely where they landed, hence the Gerasenes. Gerasa is the town. But the region itself was commonly known as the country or the land of the Gadarenes. And Gadara is a, a city farther south, but it kind of characterized the whole region. So even though they landed in the specific town of Gerasa, they were in the land of the, the Gadarenes, which is farther south. Now, let me just give you an illustration of how this might go in terms of our verbiage. If someone tells you they're traveling to New England, and then you find out that they go to New Hampshire... Both things are now true, correct? You're not going to call them wrong because they've gone to New Hampshire versus going to New England because it's kind of one and the same thing. So different names, different realities, but both are, in fact, accurate. So they are in the town of Gerasa, in the land of the Gadarenes. As they come ashore, they're immediately confronted by two men who were demon-possessed. Now, again, you read Mark, you read Luke, you're going to see that they only mention one of these two men. Matthew records that there are these two 
Mark and Luke record the one. Again, this is easily explainable because there are two men who are there on the shore, but Mark and Luke are only really focused on how Jesus interacts with the one of them. And so when you read those accounts, you're going to see one specific instance of this man. Why they leave out the other guy, I have no idea, but that's what they did. So editorially, that's what the, the decision that they make. Whatever their engagement is, it has to do with this this dealing with this man specifically, but the bigger picture is about how Jesus is dealing with these demon-possessed people. Matthew records that Jesus and the disciples, they make their, their way to shore, and they're immediately approached by these two men. That's quite the day. Can you imagine teaching all day, healing, sleeping on the boat, having a massive storm, seeing this miracle, landing on the shore, thinking you're going to get a break, and all of a sudden demon-possessed people come and attack you. These men, the text says, were demon-possessed. Literally, the Greek is to be demonized. These men were demonized. Well, what is this? What what does it mean to be demonized by something? Well, let's first talk about what the Bible says about demons. I don't know when the last time you would have heard a sermon about demons, but here we are. We're going to talk about this because that's what the Bible talks about. Demons are spirit beings who are originally created by God as angels. So they have their origin as angels. Like with the rest of the creation, these angels were deemed to be good by God. However, at some point in the course of history, a faction of these angels, led by another angel named Lucifer, they rebelled against God and they sinned against him. Isaiah 14 records Lucifer's sin God is speaking to him through the prophet, and he says, You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's what Lucifer was saying to God, the Most High himself. Lucifer's sin was really a mix of idolatry, pride, and blasphemy. So one of the worst sins ever committed. I would argue there's even a greater sin, but we'll talk about that a different day. He despised God so much, and he thought so highly of himself, that he desired to really unseat the Lord God from his throne. And in turn, God cast him out, even though Satan desired to be the sovereign over all things. God cursed him. God cast him out of heaven along with all of these angels, these fallen angels that were following him. According to Revelation 12, 4, we read that one-third of all the angels fell with Lucifer and effectively became demons. Lucifer is his proper name. He's also called Satan. The word Satan really just means adversary or even accuser. And when he was cast down, Jesus testifies in Luke ten eighteen. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so there's this, this warfare, this drama playing out in the courts of heaven. We weren't even privy to it. We, we're, we weren't even there for that. But the demons are all there. The angels are all there. God the Father is there. The Son watches all this happen. And so there's this, this uh, pre-time or pre-creation, uh, whatever it may be, certainly inside that created or somewhere, but we don't know when in history this takes place. But we do know that Satan and his demons, they hate the Lord God. They despise the Christ, and they constantly blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And because humanity, we are made in the image of God, Satan therefore hates us as well. 
and tries to destroy us at every single twist and turn. Because you might think to yourself, well, what did I ever, I didn't do anything wrong. Why, do I, why am I the, the victim of the attacks of the enemy? It's because of who you represent. It's who you look like on the inside. We know Satan is a created being. He does not share the attributes of God. So therefore, he is om, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not omnipresent. He can't be at all places at all times. I, I always kind of chuckle a little bit. When someone says, oh, you know, Satan was attacking me. Well, he's got a lot of people to attack, so I don't think it was actually you and him. Some people in history, maybe. But I think largely when we feel the oppression, darkness kind of creeping in on us, it's the, the darkness of the, the fallen world. It's demons and certainly the powers of darkness. Satan is also not omnipotent. He, can't, he doesn't have all power to do all things. He can only do so much. He has limitations, as do the demons. I've said this before, we always kind of see or have this characterization in our mind that it's God versus Satan, and it's they're kind of fighting for humanity. It's not true, though. Read the Bible, understand doctrine. God is supreme and transcendent. Satan is a created being, and he's under the heel of the Almighty. Satan can't do anything without entreating the Lord to do it. And even that, God is sovereign over what he will do. The powers of darkness are strong, and they do terrorize the world consistently. Now, they do not manifest themselves physically. When the scripture says, I'm reading Ephesians 6 here, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our warfare, my friends, is spiritual. It is ideological. It is even philosophical. Read Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, there is a wickedness and a corruption and an evil. To deny such a thing is foolishness. To say, no, people are inherently good. The world is getting better and better every day. That's not true. There are powers of darkness besieging the world even as we speak. And these forces can infiltrate the minds and the hearts of people to the point where they can become possessed. Now, Not all evil committed by people is because of demon possession. Just because a person has some kind of indwelling sin or some kind of reaction, that does not mean demon possession. I think the temptation is to overrealize some of the demonic world, but at the same time, you can't overcorrect and say it doesn't exist at all. There is some kind of a balance of understanding here. Oftentimes, people are simply influenced or instigated by this realm. Other times, a person loses complete control to the point where they are taken up and possessed by demons. Now the question is, well, how does that happen? Are you going to be walking down the street one day, getting the mail, and all of a sudden just get possessed? Is that how this works? I'd argue no. Now there's no surefire way to know how this happens, but generally speaking, generally speaking, when a person becomes so engaged and infatuated with sin and with wickedness, They can create really the perfect dwelling place for the demonic world to reside. We see this all the time when people become obsessed with the occult, when they're dabbling in forces they don't understand, when they become so entrenched and entrained in evil, when all their minds and all their thoughts and all their heart is continuously evil upon evil, that's when that begins to happen. Again, that's a generalization, generally speaking. But according to Scripture... Demon possession is a real thing. A real thing. In Matthew's gospel alone, this is interesting, 
we encounter no less than 15 references to some sort of demon possession or affliction. 15 references just in Matthew. And of those references, five are distinct encounters with people who are possessed and afflicted. This is the first full account, though, in the Gospel of Matthew, right here in our text. And Matthew makes note of the condition of these two men. Look at verse 28 again. We read a couple of details about their condition. The Bible tells us what this looks like and what it actually is. The first thing we note here is that they were coming out of the tombs. The tombs. Well, according to Old Testament law, the law forbids the touching of dead bodies. You read the Levitical Code, and you see that Jews were not allowed to touch anybody or anything that had died. So you were, you were uh, prohibited from touching a dead body. And the Bible also anathematizes any who would dabble in the occult or necromancy, any, any kind of association with the dead, people who are obsessed with the dead and praying to the dead and things like that. So a person, if you're a Jew in Israel or close to Israel, you're not going to be found anywhere near tombs or a graveyard or anything like that. You don't, want to, you don't want to go near death. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to deal with it. So these people have become so uh, possessed and so entrenched in wickedness and evil that that's where they're residing. They're going and living in this graveyard. They spend all their time there. And this has actually led some to conclude that the reason for their possession was due to their, uh, their engagement with the occult or with necromancy, that that's what they wanted to do. Therefore, they're possessed and they begin to dwell there. That's one uh, belief, of course. Talking to spirits, prayers to the dead, consulting mediums, things like this. All of this exposes a person to the kingdom of darkness in a way that they would not otherwise be exposed. Of course, that might not have been the reason at all. We don't know. It may simply have been, this is the only place that they were allowed to live in seclusion and where nobody else wanted to go. And the question is, well, why, why did no one else want to go there? Why did no one else want to be around them? Well, because of what the Bible tells us about their nature. Luke includes here that they had been living not in a house, that they had actually left their homes altogether. They had been residing in the tombs permanently. This is their new house, their new home. The second detail recorded is their disposition. Why are they living in the tombs? Why are they not living in their house? Why are they not part of society? Why does nobody want to be around these two people? Matthew says, they were so extremely violent, no one could pass by the way. How violent and aggressive do you have to be where people can't even walk by you without being attacked? It's pretty bad at that point, isn't it? Mark actually includes a little bit more here. He fills out the picture. Again, he's speaking about one man, but we read this in Mark chapter 5. It says, He was dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. That gives you a picture of what kind of a person, how unhinged, how possessed, how tormented this person was. Luke adds that he had not even put on any clothing for a long time. So these men, they were naked even. So they had ripped their clothes off the people had tried to bound them with chains so they wouldn't attack them. They'd broken loose of the chains. They were gashing themselves with stones and hurting themselves, screaming and yelling day and night, living in this graveyard. 
That sounds awful, doesn't it? And so we start to get a picture of what this demon-possessed person looks like. This man here is so afflicted and tormented, he's driven out of his own home to live in the ground, in the graveyard. He strips himself naked, which is really impure and impious, really. He speaks both of his indignity and his insanity in his possession. Really, he even possesses some kind of a superhuman strength where he can break chains. So much so that even binding him with chains proves useless. He's violent, attacking people. A terrible picture. To the point where he's driven from society and can do nothing except scream and cry. But this is the height of affliction brought on by the powers of darkness in a person who is created in the image of God. And then one day, Jesus shows up. Look at verse 29. They cried out to him, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So these men, they, they see Jesus coming. They storm Jesus and the disciples. Mark adds, however, it's interesting, that instead of actually attacking Jesus and the disciples, he actually bows down before him. And then the two questions. What business do we have with each other Son of God. Essentially, the nature of this question is, who, why are you here, and what, are you, what do you want with us? That's essentially what, what they're asking. And the note here, they, they use the term Son of God. Mark and Luke both add that the title actually goes further. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. So it's not just that they're making a general reference to God, Son of the Most High God. Scholars believe this is nothing short of an admission of the Messiahship, of the deity, of the Lordship of Christ. In in essence, they know who this is. They know who this is. And the twist of irony is this. The disciples are asking in the boat just a couple hours earlier, who is this that the winds and the sea obey him? They get their answer from the mouth of two demon-possessed men who say, this is the Son of the Most High God. Can you imagine being embarrassed to the point where you don't know who this is in your boat and a demon has to tell you? They don't know who he is. The demonic and angelic world, they know who this is. Can you imagine how how nerve-wracking it must have been? And how strange it must have been for these demons to see? They know who he is, to see the Son of God? The one who watched them fall out of heaven like lightning? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? To see him there and be rattled and say, what are you doing here? Have you come to torment torment us before the time? Why are you here, son of the most high God? So they know who this is. They've known who he is for eons. In fact, James 2.19 says, even the demons believe. They they believe he's who he says he is, and they shudder in fear. Yet they do not believe unto salvation. Demons cannot be saved. The demons don't know, however, why he's here. They're not omniscient. They don't know what the, what the story is. They don't know that he's come here to bring salvation to the people of God. They don't know. So they ask him, have you come here to torment us before the time? What are they talking about? What, do you, what, what time is this? Well, they may not be omniscient, but they know the Bible and they know prophecy. And the Bible tells us that the, at the end of the age, 
There will be a time of final judgment. We read about this at the end of the book of Revelation. A judgment of all the wicked, whereby according to Revelation 20.10, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire, and the Bible says, and tormented forever. Tormented forever. Jesus makes mention of this in Matthew 25.41. He notes that an eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, those are terrifying verses. Those are not the kind of verse you put on your fridge or on your bumper sticker on your car. But let me tell you why these verses are important. My friends, whenever you get discouraged at all the evil in the world, whenever you look out and you see injustice or you see unrighteousness or corruption or you see just the absolute worst wicked and worst evil imaginable, it's very easy for us to say, Lord, when are you going to do something about this? Why aren't you acting? What's going to happen? Are they going to win? Our hearts become frail when we see such rank wickedness. But we know that there is a place, God has prepared a place and a time in hell where He's going to not just judge, but torment all the powers of darkness forever. Whatever we think we could do to get justice or vengeance The Bible says, Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we kind of put that in the back of our minds and say, well, yeah, vengeance is the Lord's, but, you know, he's kind of taking his time, and when is it going to be, and how about it? Fear not. Fear not. When the Bible says vengeance is mine, says the Lord, that's the kind of thing that makes demons shudder. That God has prepared a place that he will torment those who torment us. He's going to torment them for all eternity. God is in control of that. And He will judge. He will judge righteously. And it will be the right thing. It's a fiery judgment. It's unrelenting. It's awful. And it's reserved for Satan and his demons. Again, the ones who torment us. But here, they ask Jesus, because they know that this is coming. They're just trying to do whatever they can do until that time. They ask Him the question, Have you come to torment us? Before the time? They know what's coming, but did you come early to do this? Why are you here? Why are you here? Now, Matthew doesn't record what takes place next, but Luke does. Luke chapter 8. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. Jesus asked him, What is your name? What is your... He's not asking the guys. He's asking what's inside these guys. What is your name? And he said, Legion. Legion. For the demons, for many demons had entered him. And it says in verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, much has been written about what this all is. There's nothing particular about the name legion. Legion. In Roman times, a legion of soldiers was three to 6,000 men. But in general, legion is simply referring to a large number, a multitude. So the fact that he calls himself legion is certainly referring to a multitude of demons that are in him. There's there's a lot going on here. They're afflicted by many demons. Many demons. But they implore Jesus not to send them into the abyss. And we don't really know exactly what this is referring to. There's lots of speculation, but it certainly could refer to 
whatever place of torment is coming for them in the final judgment. So they're pleading with him not to send them to the place where they're going to be tormented, this abyss, this darkness. So they're asking for some measure of mercy, whatever that would be for a demon, I guess. But they ask him to send them somewhere else. And so that's what happens in verses 30 and 31. Again, going back to, back to Matthew 8. Says, now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. They know they can't stay where they are, so they ask to go to the nearest place that they can indwell. And the question is, well, why, why cast them into a herd of swine? I don't know. I read a plethora, I read all kinds of comments this week about theories about why the swine, and I have no idea. And apparently neither do the commentators. They don't know why either. Maybe it's because of the impurity of the swine in Jewish culture. Maybe that was a a sign of defilement to them. Maybe it's because that was the closest thing with a heartbeat that they could go and live. Maybe it's because they knew that Jesus wouldn't go and talk and deal with these these pigs over here. Maybe one commentator said maybe they knew they were going to be cast into the sea, which would bring about persecution for Jesus, and they want to stick it to Jesus. We have no idea. But the bottom line is safe to assume that since they knew they weren't going to be allowed to dwell in the men anymore, the pigs were better than hell. So that's why they chose that. Verse 30 says that there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. But the question is, well, how many? How many? And I, you know, when you read it at face value, you think a dozen or so, 20, how big's a herd? Mark records that there were 2,000 pigs. That's a big herd. 2,000 pigs. And so in verse 32, the multitude of demons, however many they were, they go and they are cast out of the men. And they travel over and indwell these pigs. And the only thing that Jesus says to do this is the word go. He commands them go and they all leave and go into this herd. Again, not only had Jesus demonstrated his power and his authority over sickness and over nature, now we see he has absolute sovereignty over the spiritual realm As well, you see how this is being laid out in Matthew's Gospel. The power of Christ is not just He can heal you of your illness. Now He can calm the storms and He can deal with nature. And now He even goes beyond what you can see into this invisible realm. And so His his dominion is farther than even what you and I can see. And that's what they're seeing here. The disciples are looking at all this and going, what is going on? Who is this? that's doing all these things. And so this legion of demons leaves the two men and goes into 2,000 grazing pigs. This, however, disrupts the herd, driving the animals insane, and a stampede erupts. Verse 32, The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. This must have been a horrific sight. I can't even imagine the sound of this. Not only the sound from the animal themselves, but the sound of these hooves maniacally stampeding down this this side of this mountain and then crashing in the sea. Terrible sight. Awful thing to behold. This 2,000 pigs is barreling down this cliff to their death. Now, this causes quite a stir, wouldn't you think? Kind of a stir. Among the herdsmen, the herdsmen, they all see this because they watch their livelihood get up en masse and go and plunge themselves into the water. In addition to being terrified at the scene, 
They just lost everything, didn't they? If your job is a pig farmer, and in one moment your whole operation goes into the ocean, you're done. You have nothing left. And so these herdsmen, they freak out. They lose it. And what do they do? Verse 33, the herdsmen run away. And they go into the city, and they report everything, including what happened to the, to the, to the demoniacs. So they go, they tell everybody they can find, did you just, did you, let me tell you what just happened. And they're going through the whole story in town. They flee to the nearby city. They tell everybody what happens. They tell them about the demoniacs. They tell them about the exorcism. They tell them about the pigs. They tell them everything. Of course, this is not like the woman at the well who goes and tells everybody about the the good news of Jesus so they can believe. No, the herdsman's message is going to be different. Come and see the stranger who drives demons into pigs and kills them all. That's going to be the message. And so these herdsmen, they get all riled up. They get the town all worked up. And verse 34 says, the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. Everybody. They hear about this terrible event, and they all come out together to see what is going on. And they see him, and the Bible says they implored him to leave their region. There's a bit more to the story. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We've been kind of dabbling in Mark 5. I want to read this. It's fascinating, really. Again, the beginning of Mark is a parallel account. You're going to see much of the same information there. Mark expands some more. Uh, Both Mark, again, uh, and Luke record only one man, not two, even though we know that two are there. Mark focuses here on the story of this one man, though. There's one man in particular that that he wants to focus in on. In my own naivete, I admit, I, I sometimes read things like this, When there's a man or a woman or a person who's not named, but the story zeroes in on, it makes me wonder sometimes if this person had a future in in, in the history of the church, and everybody at that time would have known who this person was, and yet we don't know their name at all. That could be one function. There's even, I won't get into it. (laughs) We'll we'll get there, I promise. Um, But it's just a theory on on my behalf. So it could be that this person is someone that the rest of church history would have known who this story was, and this was his, his story, his history. That could be, it might not be, I don't know. For our purposes here, though, I want to read Mark chapter 5, verses 14 to 20. Again, same information, same event. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came out to see uh, what that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. This man becomes a missionary now. Again, this account parallel to Matthew A few things transpire here. After driving out the demons into the swine, we see that this this man is now healed. 
All these demons are gone, and this man is now completely restored. Mark notes that he's no longer attacking people on the road. Now, he's sitting down. He's sitting down. He's doing just fine. He's no longer naked. He says he's clothed. They would have found a tunic for him and said, here, let's put some clothes on you. No longer is he screaming and gashing himself with stones. Now, he says he's in his right mind. He's sitting down. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He's he's thinking clearly now. He sees the world as he's supposed to see the world. And the townspeople, they come because they know who these guys are. But this man in particular, they come, they see him sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and the Bible says they become frightened. They see this man who's doing nothing now. They're freaking out. How did this happen? We we used to bind this guy with chains. He used to attack us and bite at us and try to gnaw at us, and now he's fine? What happened? What's going on? Because none of them could do in brute strength what Jesus could do in a single word. Just like with the disciples in the storm, they were comfortable with the familiarity of the terror they could understand. As fishermen, I can handle a storm. I can do that. But I can't comprehend the one who stops the storm. Can't do that. I have no idea how to put that into my grid and my mind to think. How do you deal with that? A person who stops the storm with a word. Same thing with the townspeople. We can deal with driving out demon-possessed people and making them live in the graveyard. We can handle that. But what kind of a man is able to drive out demons into a herd of pigs? That's just too terrifying to comprehend. There's an old saying, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. But for them... They would rather deal with the devil than deal with the Son of God. Too much for them. They can't fathom His power. They can't fathom His holiness. They can't fathom His glory. It's too much. Because of this, the Messiah destroys demons. If that's true, if this this Son of God can drive out demons, what's He going to do to me and my sin? Because it's easy to look down on someone like that, isn't it? And look at them and say, well, they're demon-possessed. They had it coming, so we're going to kick them out. But now, Jesus did that to him. What's he going to say about the thing that I have to deal with? Now, I'm not the worst guy in the room anymore. Or I should say the other way around. Now, he's not the worst guy in the room. Holiness is terrifying, isn't it? Because it reveals our own sin. We realize that we're not as great as we thought we were. So they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They, they beg Him. They, the Bible says they implore Him. They entreat Him. They beg Him to leave. Forget the fact that He could do so much else in their town, bless them, give them the gospel, feed them, take care of them, minister to them, love them. No, we don't want you. They beg Him to leave and take whatever magic power you have, take it with you, just go. They don't want to deal with Jesus. But what about this man? What about the man? Notice the text says, I'm in Mark 5 again, they're imploring him to leave the region, but this man, same word, is imploring him to bring him along. I don't want to stay in the tombs. I don't want to go back home. I want to go with you. 
You're the one who saved me. You're the one who delivered me. Wherever you go, I want to go. And so now he's begging Jesus to take him with him. Lord, I want to be wherever you are. I'll go through whatever storm you've got. I don't care. You saved me. I want to be with you. That's what he's asking for. Within a matter of minutes, he goes from demoniac to disciple. He goes from evil-minded to evangelistic-minded. Everything changes for him. He wants to follow Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He doesn't bring him along. No, instead he says, I want you to go home. Go home to your hometown. And he goes to Decapolis. Decapolis is is a region, actually. Decapolis is a place where there are actually ten surrounding towns altogether. He says, I want you to go to that place, those ten towns, and I want you to be my witness there. Because they would have all known who this guy was, right? He goes back to to Jerusalem. Nobody in Jerusalem has any idea who this guy is. He's just a guy who says he was demon-possessed. But you go home, people who know you, who had to try to bind you, parents who had to try to discipline you, you go home, and they see what's happened, the change in your life, they're going to be astonished. They're going to say, what happened to you? And you say, Jesus did. Jesus redeemed me. Jesus saved me. And that's his job, is to go home and tell everybody, I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm different. Look, I have clothes on. That's the start, right? No longer possessed, no longer afflicted. Now he belongs to Jesus. And he tells them, I want you to to tell the truth and to show people the mercy. God had done a great thing. God had shown him mercy. Now God could have left him in the tombs. Jesus could have just passed by, but instead, I want you to notice this, Jesus came for him. There's no other account, nothing else going on in the text. The very next verse, they go back to where they came from. So look at this, Jesus came across the sea, through a storm, oppressed by people, just to save. To leave where he was comfortable, I should say, to cross this ocean, to cross this sea, To save. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 People ask all the time, why why did Jesus come to earth? Jesus said it. To redeem, to save, to buy back that which was lost. Jesus came on a rescue mission to save people. And that's the mission of of every church, to preach this gospel, to lead people to salvation. You and I can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. Someone's afflicted. Someone's hurting. There's nothing I can do. I'm not a priest. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I can't do anything. All you and I can do is point that person back to Christ, and He saves them. But He still does. He's still in the business of saving, to redeem the irredeemable, to save that which we perceive cannot be saved. I'm always sort of taken aback when Bible critics take issue with Jesus destroying 2,000 pigs. Ever think about that? They, They apparently do. That keeps them up at night, apparently. How Jesus could destroy his own creation, destroy 2,000 pigs and drown them. We've become so humanitarian that to the point where we favor animals over the lives and souls of people. But Jesus has it right. Here's the question. What's worth more, 
2,000 pigs or two men? What, what price can you put on a life, a human life? I believe this shows the value of the Imago Dei, that you and I are created in the image of God with insurmountable value and worth. Even a person who hates God, they are intrinsically more valuable than anything else in the creation. This is why Christians value life at all stages. In the womb, outside the womb, even to the end of life, all of life is valuable and precious to us. That's not a political statement, let me tell you. They try to politicize that. It's not. We need to bring that back. That's not the political realm to use for votes. That is a a moral issue. It's a biblical issue. It's a theological issue. That life is valuable. Life is precious because God creates it and puts His own image into a life. And Jesus, in one word, demonstrates that He will value and save these two men over this other thing. God is willing to sacrifice His lesser creation for the greater creation. Because He loves those who are made in His image. And let me tell you, friends, you and I have no business, no right to treat other people with disdain. We live in a polarizing culture right now, and I'll tell you, it's wrong. Don't buy into it. Don't play the game. Don't hate people. They want you to hate because it gets their base up. Forget it. We have no business hating anybody. doesn't matter how vile they are, how much they curse you, the wicked they've done. Jesus loves people. You and I are to love people as well. And to see them, even if they grate on your nerves, even if they bother you, even if they've done terrible things, to see them as image bearers of the Most High God and minister accordingly. And the worse they are, you preach the gospel even harder. You love them harder. Because God can save anybody. If He can save two naked, gashing themselves, demon-possessed men living in a graveyard, He can save anybody. He does all the time. He does all the time. But this brings me to one sort of final theological question. The question that always kind of persists. Is it possible then for believers, for Christians who have been purchased by Christ to then find themselves demon-possessed? Is that possible? Am I in danger of that? The answer is no. No. Can you be afflicted? Opposed? Tempted? Yes. We're always at war with the powers of darkness. They rage against us. But in terms of being controlled or possessed, no. And all of this has to do with the gospel. Our sin ruins us before Christ, doesn't it? Christ then pays for our sin and stops the war between us and God. Then we become born again, the Bible teaches. Whereby the Spirit of God, whatever is in us before is gone. The Spirit of God takes up residence and removes the heart of stone, the wicked heart, and brings in a heart of flesh, a heart that desires to love God. We are in there indwelled in the whole, by the Holy Spirit. And we are new creations 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're no longer the old creation than old man. We're now a new creation. That's why 1 John 4.4 tells us that greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. If Christ can save a man ravaged by demons again, He can save anybody. So what is our job? Our job is to proclaim the gospel to every person we can. I don't care what their background is. I don't care what their disposition is, what they've done. There's all, we always do this as humans. 
We see a person and we say, no, they're, they're not going to believe. I'm, I'm not going to talk to them because they're just too far gone. We, we play this stupid game in our minds and it's wrong to say that person's not worthy of the gospel. Shame on us. Every single person, the farther down they are, Jesus did not come for the righteous. He came for those who are sick and hurting and dying in their sin, just like you and me. He came for us, didn't he? And I know many of your stories out here, and I'll tell you, we look around the room here and we think, well, you know, they grew up in church, they had a pretty good life, you know, maybe, and some of you probably did. I'll tell you, some of you have stories that you, I would, you would not believe. How God has redeemed you and saved you out of the worst possible circumstance and showed his mercy on you and loved you and drew you up and saved you. And I'll tell you, it is a testimony of God's grace and kindness. He loves to save the unsavable, doesn't he? He does it really well, too. And he changes people. He transforms them from the old to the new. You meet a person who comes to Christ after those kind of a life, and you say, what changed? Last time I saw you, you were a mess. What happened? What changed? What's different? You say, Jesus did. He saved me. He forgave me. He restored me. And now I live for him. He's my God. And let me tell you about him. It's amazing what God does. Again, God loves to save that which has been lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just what a joy it is. Lord, we will not know these men's names until we get to heaven. But just I praise you that there are these kinds of stories. A person who is so far gone, there just does not seem to be any hope. And we resign them, we sort of confine them to the perimeter and we say we just can't, we can't deal with them. But God, you go out on a mission. You will cross oceans. You will do whatever that you want to do, whatever it takes to save people. That you have an infrustratable will that you love to redeem. And so God, we sit here as trophies of your grace. Nothing good or savable inherent in us. But you have poured out kindness, not because we're worthy, but because you're God and you are. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you would extend such loving kindness to us. Every single Christian sitting in this room, every single Christian listening to the sound of my voice, we all have the same testimony. We once were lost, but now we've been found in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in our sensitivities toward others. Lord, to to be willing to cross seas, if you will, to reach them, to love them, to bear with them in their affliction and to bring them the saving gospel. No one is going to turn because of our efforts that we can't muscle them into the kingdom. But you are all powerful and you can save and you do so by this message of truth that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross to pay for sinners and to redeem them. And the message is, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. God, that is a wonderful message for us to share to other people. So Lord, I pray for boldness for your people, for an inherent love that sees them as image bearers of God, to love them and to want them to be saved and to reach them, Lord. Help us, have mercy on us, show us how to do it, and lead us in this way. Father, as we turn to your table and 
celebrate and remember the cost of salvation, I pray that you would work in the hearts of each one of us today to quiet our minds, to help us to remember that our salvation cost the precious blood of Christ. So we thank you for this chance to do so now. In Jesus' name, amen.